Amen. If you're thankful for music this morning, say amen. amen. What an amazing time of worship this morning. And uh, just so thankful for ways we can worship him and praise him. Uh, Acts chapter 9, if you have your Bible with you this morning, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to begin. And uh, I do want to take just a quick moment to say uh, we are so thankful uh, yesterday to have been able to be a part of Jeff and Emma Proctor. Uh, their wedding was yesterday. And so if some of you aren't, weren't aware of that, uh, Jeff's not with us this morning and won't be probably for another week. Um, something about a honeymoon. I don't know. I don't know what's going on anymore. Kids these days, you know. Uh, but no, uh, it was such an amazing day and uh, evening, I should say, and just a great blessing to be a part of that ceremony. And so pray for Jeff and Emma. Pray a lot for Emma. And uh, she's marrying into the Proctor family. And uh, they are a great, great family, but just, we'll say difference maybe is a way to put it. some of them. Steve and Kelly are great, and Milo, but, you know, and you get to the rest of the family, it's a little questionable. Um, is Wesley in here? There he is. He's like, look at him, talking in church. See what I'm saying? That's exactly what I'm talking about. No, it was great to be a part of that, so we are excited for them. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our Awkward series and uh, by looking into the life of the Apostle Paul and discovering that we can find our footing when talking about Jesus. Last week we opened up the series talking about the amazing gospel that we've been given, the amazing truth of the gospel. And that when you realize what you've received in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that amazing gift of the forgiveness of sin, not by any human effort. Let me say that again. You are not redeemed and forgiven of your sin by any human efforts. There is nothing you can do to earn salvation. And praise God for that, because if that's true, then there is absolutely nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Some of you didn't get that. That's okay. It's, it's Memorial Day weekend. I know you're thinking, hot dogs, chips, okay? If there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn our salvation, then there is absolutely nothing we can do to lose our salvation. Amen. And that is an amazing gift because that is a guarantee from God himself that says, if you just trust in me and you put your faith in me, I will seal you, the Bible says, seal you, affirm you, guarantee you eternal life until the day of redemption, until the day you stand before Jesus Christ. And it is face-to-face faith. Right now it's faith not by sight. Right? We don't see him in the way we will, but one day we will stand before him and we will see our Savior with our eyes And we will worship him in person until that very moment he says, I guarantee you by the indwelling of my Holy Spirit, by me giving you my Holy Spirit, that you will never lose the salvation that you have in Christ. And that is an amazing gift. And when we realize that and we realize it was all by grace, all by him doing it for us, then the only response that we can come up with according to Scripture is to realize we have a call on our lives. We have a mission given to us, rather a commission given to us by Christ himself. And he says, go into all the world and preach this gospel. See, it's hard to preach the gospel, to be driven to preach the gospel, to be driven for the concern for those that are lost, unless I fully understand what? What the gospel actually is. If you think it's just going to church and saying some prayers and reading the Bible and being a good person, you're not going to have much drive to go reach people. Because that sounds a lot like rules and laws and regulations. 
But when you realize the gospel is the loving, gracious act of a holy God to forgive sinners for purpose of relationship for eternity, then anyone who calls in the name of Christ may be saved. Anyone can be redeemed. Man, that drives you to say, man, I love my neighbor. I love my family member. I love my spouse. And so I'm going to do all that I can to share Christ with them because I want to see them have the same relationship with God, know the same love, have the same peace in trial and struggle that I have, and I want them to have this. I'm driven by love for them because I've been loved by God himself. Then when you realize that gospel, you do not have to be convinced or controlled to go and share it. You will instantly have a desire in the Holy Spirit to share your faith. However, the desire is there, but the how-to may be lacking. You know what I'm saying? You have a desire to share your faith, but the how-to is lacking. And now some of you, this is foreign to you. Some of you, you don't understand that. You think, I just, I, it just seems to naturally flow out of me sharing my faith. And that's an amazing gift from God. But it does not mean that those that have to work at sharing their faith are off the hook. And so here's what I would say. If you're here and sharing your faith is easy for you, please don't get frustrated by those of us that struggle. Please don't get frustrated by those of us that have a hard time getting over the fear and sharing our faith. Pray for us. Encourage us with your stories of how the Lord has used you. Pray for those that are around you. But here's the other thing. As you're sharing your faith, and it may come really easy for you, realize that every time you share your faith, you're symbolizing or connecting yourself to Jesus. And so that person that hears you share your faith, they may not receive Christ, but I guarantee you one thing they'll begin to do, they'll start watching you. The minute you say, hey, I know Jesus, and I would love for you to know Jesus, they'd go, well, I'm not really into that, but thanks for the offer. The second you open your mouth and you say you're a Christian in this culture, people will watch you. And you would say, well, that's not fair. I'm not talking about being perfect, but I think we need to live for Christ in a way that honors him. I think we need to be aware of how we're living and how we're acting and how we're living. Not that we're perfect because we all make mistakes. But I'm telling you, the Apostle Paul seemed to suggest he wanted to do nothing that would even come close to marring the name of Christ, that would dare to mark the name of Christ in a negative way. He said, now I will do everything possible that is in me by God's grace to not let that happen. I don't want to bring any shame to my Savior. You know what you do when you screw up as a Christian and you mess up and you blow it? You repent and you confess and you're honest about it. Hey, look, I messed up. Man, I'm really sorry. It was dumb. But many of you have tried to witness to people and they've said, oh, no, I, I know what Christians are like. I used to work with a Christian. I used to live next door to a Christian. Now, their definition of Christian could mean anything from churchgoer to a guy that told him about Jesus. And what they're saying, they're setting the stage for, that person didn't really impress upon me the true nature of who I think Christ would be. And so I don't want anything to do with the church or Jesus because I met one Christian one time and they weren't very nice. Is that fair? Absolutely not. You don't do that in most cases. If you go to a doctor who's a jerk, you don't go, all doctors are jerks, I'm never going to the doctor again. You do what? You find another doctor. But in the church, it's different. People in the world will say, well, I knew a Christian and they weren't very nice and so I don't want anything to do with any Christians ever. All churches are bad. It's so illogical. But because it's out there, and probably because a few decades ago, the church started putting out this false image that they were perfect, pretending like everything was perfect, realized we weren't. People started figuring it out because we're not perfect. And so now we have to work extra hard to show people, I'm not perfect, but man, I'm trying to live for Jesus. And you know what's great is when you mess up, that's even more evidence of his grace. 
So that's one of the biggest questions we ask ourselves. Is, man, I want to share my faith. I have the desire, but I don't know how. The first thing you have to do is receive the gospel and understand there's a call on your life to preach the gospel. If you know the gospel, you're called to share the gospel. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. It doesn't matter how much you know, how little you know. If you know Jesus, God says, go share your faith. Be my witness. It is, there is no gray area on this matter. You cannot say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not ready to share my faith yet. That doesn't exist in the New Testament. That is not in there. In fact, read most of the encounters with Jesus where the people came to saving faith. An instant result was what? Sharing their faith. And Jesus never said, go tell them. Share my name. When he gets to the disciples, he has to say, this is what you're going to be doing. You're going to be my disciples. You're going to be my witnesses. But wait. He said, wait, because they were getting ahead of him. (laughs) They wanted to share their faith so bad. He said, no, no, you need to wait for power from on high. You need to be patient. Because you need the Holy Spirit to be able to do what I'm calling you to do. But guess what? We don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit. He's already been given. And at the moment of salvation, you have all you need to share your faith. But the first question many people ask is, where do I start? I know the gospel. I know I need to share my faith. I have the desire. I understand the biblical concept of sharing my faith. I get it. But where in the world do I start? Where there's one place you have to start, once you understand the gospel and your call, is you have to start by believing that God can use you right where you are. Isn't it true? Where do you start? You start where you are. You start right now. You start with discipline and saying, God, I want to be used by you. We realize the change that God has made in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we realize it is him who is doing the work through us. We don't have to carry the weight of results. Our purpose in talking about Jesus is not to convert anyone. Let me say that again. Your purpose in sharing your faith with someone is not to convert them. That is not your job. Somewhere in the, in the Baptist church, we got this all messed up. We thought it was our job to convert people. The Bible says he who wins souls is wise. But guess what? When you're sharing your faith, you're not really the one winning them. God just uses you as a vessel, as a tool to change their hearts, to prick their hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit. And God wins them ultimately. I don't save anyone. I can't save anyone. But this is a fear we have, isn't it? What if I say it wrong? What if I don't get it all right? What if I can't answer all their Bible questions? What if they don't believe? None of that is your concern. Now I'll say this. As someone that's sharing your faith, you need to know the Bible. You need to be studying the Bible. You need to be understanding the scriptures so that you can grow in your knowledge of God. So you can begin to answer some questions. But it's not your job to save anyone. And I don't know where we got our minds off track that we think the results are on us. This turned into this in the Baptist church where people would say, well, how many, it's not how many of you shared your faith with this week. It's what? How many of you led to the Lord this week? And so people that have shared their faith with 50 people in an honest, truthful, Holy Spirit-driven, biblical way of sharing the gospel. Repentance-based evangelism, a repentance-based salvation message. Not get saved and God will make your life better. Because if somebody gets saved by that premise and then they go through the struggles and trials of life, they're going to think you lied to them. And they're going to have buyer's remorse and say, well, I didn't sign up for all this. Instead say, no, no, receive Christ because you need him. Receive Christ because you've sinned against him and he has given his life for you on the basis of love. Repent from your sin, turn from your sin, and follow Christ. So what if you've done that with 50 people this week and not one of them received Christ? 
And you go to church and they say, hey, how many of you led to the Lord? You feel good? You feel bad? How do you feel? You feel pretty crappy, don't you? No, oh, man, I must be doing something wrong. No one's, I didn't lead anyone to the Lord this week. See how we've changed it into this results? You see, we're not called to be manufacturers as followers of Christ. We're called to be distributors. We don't manufacture salvation. Only the Holy Spirit of God, through the working of his word, in the heart of the unbeliever, changing them, opening their eyes to repentance, then choosing the gospel for themselves. That's who manufactures salvation. All we're called to distribute what we have. And to do it honestly and faithfully. Just to spread it as much as we can. Absolutely. Amen. But how do we do that? Where do I start? We start by believing God can use you. See, one of our fears is, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I don't know, blah, 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 blah. The other fear is, maybe I'm not good enough to be used by God. Maybe I've messed up too much as a follower of Christ. Maybe I just don't have it all together. Maybe I'm not perfect. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm just not there yet for God to use me. But I want to look at an example of someone that no one would have ever thought could be used by God to share Christ. Popular stories here I'm going to be referencing, but I want us to think about this because this is not just a biblical story. This is true life. This happened in real life history. Acts chapter 9, look at verse 20. Acts chapter 9 and starting in verse 20. Man, am I good enough? Could God really use me to share his gospel? Where do I start? Where you start by believing God can use you right where you are if you know the gospel for yourself. Verse 20 of Acts chapter 9. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased them more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ." Let's open in a word of prayer, and I'm going to ask you to do something. If you've been battling with this idea of, am I good enough to share my faith? Maybe I'm just not good enough. How could God really use me with what I've done or what I'm doing or what I did before? If you know Christ, you need to repent of that thing if you haven't already, and you need to believe you're forgiven and receive his grace. And then this morning, as we're preaching through this, you're not going to be sitting there going, oh, man, I wish I was like the Apostle Paul. You're going to be saying, God, thank you for making me just like me and help me to see that I am usable right now. Father, would you just open our hearts and minds to what you have for us? Father, we thank you for examples like this we get to read in Scripture of men and women that you used where nobody else would have given them a second thought. Nobody would have paid attention to them. Nobody thought they could ever be used to do what you can do through them. And Father, so many of us, we, we come to church and we, 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 sometimes we even know all the answers. We know what the Bible actually says about these things. But that enemy starts whispering, and that flesh starts whispering, and that sin past starts whispering, and all of a sudden we're listening to those voices instead of listening to the voice of truth. And I pray that if nothing else, that we would be more in tune to your voice this morning, that when we go from this place, that wherever we find ourselves, as you show us the open doors of opportunity, that we would walk through them confidently, not in ourselves, because we have nothing to offer. We can't manufacture it but we're confident in the salvation that we've received because it is based in you, in your grace, and in your love. And I pray that we would start right where we are, that we would just be open to be used by you and allow you to do great things in us and through us to your glory. Father, may we realize that the reason we really share our faith 
is yes so that someone we love might come to know Christ and experience all the many blessings, not to mention just eternal life and security, forgiveness of salvation, and an eternity with you in heaven instead of an eternity in a place called hell. That we'd be driven by love, but Lord, even more than that, we'd be driven by a, a desire for you to be glorified. Your glory is really, at the end of the day, all that matters. You saved us for this purpose, to be a disciple and to make disciples. Not that people can glorify us or talk about our church. Lord, I don't care if anybody ever remembers the name of our church. I don't care if anybody ever remembers my name as a pastor. That's irrelevant. It's, it's meaningless. It's vain. I pray they'd remember your name. We want your fame to go forth. And so, Lord, if somebody's sitting in this room right now that thinks, ah, oh, this message isn't for me. Ah, oh, that message was okay. Ah, oh, I've heard this text before. I pray you'd break their spirit of apathy right now. And I pray you'd shake us. That we'd be disciple makers right where we are right now, today, in our jobs, our schools, our families, and stop thinking about trying to be like someone else, but ultimately desire to be like you as you've created us. Father, we love you, and we thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is such a powerful and dramatic change we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. This is what we call a eternal life change for Christ. We see a man that was one of the greatest persecutors of the church become its greatest missionary. The first time we read of the Apostle Paul, who in this passage at this time in Acts is known by the name Saul, he is basically an enforcer for the Jews, overseeing the imprisonment and the death of the followers of Christ. Listen to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, this being Stephen's death, the first Christian martyr we read of in the book of Acts and in the early church. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, or, and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, it is not a coincidence that Saul's name is mentioned in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, along with the phrase, great persecution. Saul's not connected to this by coincidence or by accidents. The one aspect of this that I find so interesting in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, kind of as a side note for more history to kind of understand the bigger picture, is that this verse is pushing the followers of Christ to begin to fulfill the words of Christ in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? But you shall be my witnesses. To where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And we think that's supposed to mean, well, the church was first in Jerusalem, then it went to Judea, then a little while later in the New Testament it went to Samaria, and now through missions it's going to the uttermost part of the earth. You can look at it that way, but when this was written in the original language, it's written with the intent to be accomplished immediately. Jesus was telling his disciples, don't wait, you have the Holy Spirit, now go do this thing. Be a missionary to all of these places. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, what's happened? How far has the gospel spread? Well, apparently, most of the followers of Christ have stayed where? In Jerusalem. This is not uncommon for Christians, is it? Today, even. Jesus says, go make disciples of all the world. Guess where the vast majority of Christian workers serve? Right here in America. Do you know where the vast majority of Christians are? Not here. We have more Christian workers in this country, but there's more Christians in the rest of the world if you added it all up. 
Why is that? Because, man, we're comfortable. We're creatures of comfort. This is why when I was in college, I prayed and prayed and prayed. We always have this joke at, at BBC where I went to school. They have this thing called Missions Emphasis Week. And we always joked about the fact that you'd start off your year as a pastoral major, but by the time Missions Emphasis Week is done, you've switched to missions. Because you have these missionaries coming in and sharing all these stories about all these needs and stuff, and about a third of the pastoral majors would be like, that's it, I quit, I'm done, I'm going to missions. And so we just joke about it. We used to hate it as pastoral majors. We're like, we're losing all of our students. These missions, man. But I remember thinking, oh, I just prayed and prayed and prayed. God, would you have me go to the mission field? Would you have me do that? Would you have me surrender to full-time missions? I went on a couple missions trips in college. I went to one just recently, a couple years ago, to Romania. And every time I'm on the field, even when I was in Romania, and I didn't tell you guys this, but when I was in Romania, I remember spending some time in prayer like, God, is this... Is this what you want from me? Like, do I even go back? Do I go back and tell them, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm moving on to missions? Like, what do you want from me? And all along the way, I feel as though God's spirit is saying, no, you know, maybe down the road, but not yet. So I don't know what God's going to do. Maybe sometime 30 years from now, I'll go to the mission field. I don't know. Maybe I'll never go to the mission field. It's kind of not really that big of a deal. It's important to serve God where he wants you now and focus on today and this day of service. Like I said, I may, my goal right now, if the Lord leads, is to retire from this church as a senior pastor. That's if pastors ever retire. I'm beginning to think pastors don't retire. I've got to meet some pastors in their like 70s and 80s, and they're still pastoring. And I'm like, I didn't sign up for all that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Florida's calling. You know, I think I've got to go down there. I think, isn't that what everybody does when they retire? They go to Florida. Isn't that but I remember thinking to myself, man, God, would you have me go to the mission field? Because, man, do you really need another pastor in America? Do you need another church? Just do this today. Drive from our church to just the other side of 69. Just go on 53 and just count the number of churches you come across. We are not lacking churches in America today. We're lacking disciple makers. We're lacking individual believers that are saying, I believe the gospel enough not just to receive it, but to duplicate it, to go out and distribute this thing so that I can disciple someone else and I can be a part of this process. But here, these followers of Christ, guess what they had done in the seven chapters of Acts? Not just in Jerusalem. It's easy. It's comfortable. But God has a way of showing us that sometimes his plan doesn't make sense, but it accomplishes his glory. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says that the persecution against the church was so great that it scattered the believers throughout what regions? Judea and Samaria. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Christ knew what was coming for his followers. He prepared them for it throughout his entire earthly ministry. And as persecution came, it pushed the believers from their comfort and into the world to be the missionaries they were called to be for Christ. God is using a seemingly hopeless and even hurtful situation to his glory. And before Saul ever chose to follow Christ, he is part of God's master plan. Do you see that? Before Saul ever chose to follow Christ, God was using Saul to actually accomplish his will. Man, that's our God. Even when things seem hopeless and hurtful, and how could God ever use this? All of a sudden we step back and we go, now I see how he's fulfilling this. Now I see how, how he wasn't pleased in what this person did, but I can see how he's using it in my life. 
Then only God can take things that were meant for evil and use them for good. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And here we see this person, Saul, that hated the church, hated followers of Christ, was used by God for the global purpose of spreading the gospel. But God in his grace, as he always does, comes to Saul to confront his persecution, to confront his persecutor of the church, and radically changes Saul's life for eternity. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We're not going to read the whole passage for time's sake, but in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we read about Saul's encounter with Christ, the encounter with Christ. Super familiar passage. We're not going to read it all for time's sake, as I said, but look at verse 1. This gives you a little bit of an idea of who this guy Saul really is. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of his, of this way, what way? The way of Christ. One of the names of the early church was not Christian. They're not called Christian until Antioch. They were called those in the way. Now, I love that about the early church because here's what it tells me. How many ways are there to God's kingdom, to heaven? There's one. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the way. They were known as either the way or the people of the book as the, the word of God began to be copied and multiplied. So here we see, he says, if you're in the way, meaning you're, you're part of this group, I'm coming after you. Whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This guy saw it didn't matter. You're a man or a woman. If you know Christ and you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be arrested, persecuted, and imprisoned and possibly killed for that faith. What does this tell us about those that were in the way in Acts chapter 9? What does this tell us about the early church? This tells us they must have been pretty outspoken about their faith. Because he's saying, if I find you and I find out you're one of them, I'm arresting you. If the early church was hiding and quiet and scared and keeping everything secret, it would have been pretty hard for Saul to find them. But he makes it sound like I can just go find them because they're obvious. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that a great encouragement to us today? That these believers, even in the midst of great persecution, where they're hiding in their churches? No, they were just as open as they ever were. Just as bold with their faith as they ever were. But we get little bits of persecution here and there in our country today, and we want to run and hide in our churches. Well, you're not going to believe this. They told me I can't pray at work. They said, I can't bring a Bible to the office anymore. Oh, you're so persecuted. Is it what it should be and what I want it to be? No, but guess what? Man, it doesn't matter what they tell you. It doesn't change your faith. You can live boldly for Christ no matter what they say. It's your choice how you live for Christ. You see, the apostle or the person of Saul, when you look down here, look at verse uh, Verse 4 talks about the fact that he says, why persecuting thou me? Verse 5, and he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling, astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now this is pretty interesting. Paul hates the church hates the followers of Christ, arrests and persecutes them. Jesus shows up. What's Paul's demeanor? Lord, Lord, what would you have me to do? He's humbled. 
I believe Saul was actually a good man. Now, we make Saul to be this villain, right, this Disney character villain, this horrible, horrible person. But I believe Saul was a very righteous Jewish leader who did everything the law required him to do. He believed he was absolutely right in all that he did in persecuting the church. Saul was passionate and fervent. He was determined to do whatever God commanded, and he was a man of great faith. However, his faith needed a readjustment. Now, this is amazing to me because Saul was a good man. Could you imagine you're, you're Saul, okay? You've lived your whole life following the commands of God. You believe you've done everything right that God has called you to do. You see these heretics and these heathens rise up, and they start preaching against the God that you believe you're following. And they're leading people astray, and you get angry, and you're frustrated. And you're like, no, 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 this is not what God commanded. This is not right. So you fervently go after them, preaching what you believe the truth. And then Jesus shows up, strikes you with blindness, and says that you're in the wrong. Like, how would you respond? I'd be a little shocked. God, th this is all for you. I've been doing all of this for you. Why would you now come against me? Because Saul was a good man in his eyes. And to be honest, this is most of the people you're going to witness to, isn't it? Most of you aren't going to witness the drug-dealing murderers. People that our society would say are, quote-unquote, the bad guys. And by the way, everyone needs Jesus. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. Just so you know. Our culture says, oh, that guy's really bad. This person's okay and that person's great. Uh, Jesus says they're all broken in sin. It's just some of our sins are criminal in our culture and some of our sins are accepted in our culture. So we don't point, oh, I can't believe you did that. Yeah. Yeah. You do that, go home and go, in the mirror, okay? <laughs> or ask your spouse, and they'll go, at you, okay? <laughs> Most people you're going to witness to are good, tax-paying. Maybe not content with that, but they pay their taxes. They keep their home nice. They have a good family. They're moral. You know, one of the things in our culture today is certain sins are becoming more and more accepted. And now tell people, well, the Bible says that's a sin. And they'll say, well, how can it be so wrong? The person is such a good person. They're so nice. That's great. They could be the nicest person in the world. But without Christ, the Bible says they're damned for a place called hell. That's not my words. That's his words. You can be a really evil, mean, cantankerous, nasty person. The kind of get off my grass kind of guy. You know what I'm saying? Nah, get off my grass. Okay? You're just mean and angry. You need Jesus just as much as the nice guy that has a great family and picture perfect. Most people you witness to are going to be nice, good people. So it brings a question. One of the common questions I hear when talking about Jesus is, what about the innocent person who doesn't know Jesus? Do they go to hell? And I can tell you with all assurity and all confidence that there is no doubt on this. That that innocent man in an area that has not heard of Christ, who dies without salvation, goes directly to heaven. And I can tell you why that's true. That innocent man who lives in an area that never heard of Jesus, who dies without salvation, will go directly to heaven. You know how I know that's true? Because there is no such thing as an innocent man in this world. If there was an innocent man, purely innocent from sin, and they died, yeah, they'd go to heaven. But the problem is we think the question wrong. It's not, what do we do with this innocent guy? No, no, no. It's, look at all these guilty people. 
And some guilty people have been exposed to the gospel and received it. Some guilty people have been exposed to the gospel and rejected it. And some guilty people have not been exposed to the gospel. Therefore, they could not receive it or reject it. There is no innocent man. There's no mythical innocent person that's lived a perfect life. It doesn't exist. Romans chapter 1 tells us pretty clearly that man is inexcusable. That there is no righteous man. In God's eyes, there is none righteous. No, not one. Saul was good in religious eyes, in cultural eyes. But in God's eyes, he was just as unrighteous as the rest. You see, Saul was a good man. But we also see that Saul was a broken man. God blinded Saul physically. He humbled him so that Saul could begin to truly see the truth. Don't you love this? God blinds him physically so he can see spiritually for the first time. When we come face to face with the person of Christ, we are humbled. And we realize that everything we thought about God before and about right and wrong, it all falls apart. Isn't it amazing? Take all these debates and these convincing arguments about right and wrong and morality and put it before the person of Christ and guess what? It all falls away. It all becomes worthless and vain and empty. We have no arguments that could possibly show God that we are good enough. When we come before Christ, an amazing and healthy sense of smallness comes over us as well as an awareness of our sinfulness. This is the only response before the perfect son of God. I am really, really small, and I am really, really sinful when I realize who God really is. And in my sin, before I receive Christ, I come humbly before him, and I bow before him as a holy and righteous king, realizing I am sinful, and I have nothing to offer. What does the Bible tell us about when anybody comes before the Lord's throne? What does the Bible say? Man, I fall as dead men. I, I just, I lose control of everything. I instantly become aware of my sin. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a land of unclean people. I am sinful. Anytime we're in the presence of God or his word, by the way, we become aware of our sin. But you know what else we become, become aware of if we really understand the word of God and the gospel? We become aware of his grace and the opportunity for repentance. That you can never be in the presence of God without the instant availability of your sin, but also the availability of repentance and grace. What did God do? I'm a man of unclean lips. Here, let me clean your lips. Do you know what that was an act of? Grace. I will pardon you. I will cleanse you from the inside out. You see, when we come before him, we need to realize we need to be humbled. Let's realize Christ extends grace to those that humble themselves before him and lifts not up themselves. Not into pride in ourselves, but in an abundant confidence in him. We come humbly and then he lifts us up. This moment changed Saul's life because it granted Saul, not only was Saul changed by the encounter of Christ, but he was granted the eternal change of purpose. The eternal change of purpose. Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, we already read that. Go over to Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. And remember, the whole point of this talk is not just, man, look how awesome Paul is. It's look at what God can do in me, my life. Look at how God can use me. Saul had an eternal change of purpose. You see, his passion changed, but it stayed the same. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. And he lists this long list of individuals 
But notice the name written there. It says, which had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Here we see, and by the time, I'm not going to go through all of it, but listen to it and read it from Acts chapter 9, when it says, and straightway Paul preached the gospel, all the way to Acts chapter 13, we see that after Saul's conversion, he went immediately to sharing his faith and serving in the local church. We find him in Acts 13, serving in the local church of Antioch. Not because he was the famous Apostle Paul, but because he was where an opportunity was opened up to him to serve the church. You realize before he became the famous missionary, Paul, the great missionary, do you know what he was doing? He was just serving with a team of people in a local church. Just doing the day-to-day stuff. I've always believed this, and I believe it's still true today. That if you really want to accomplish great things for God, serve in the little things today. Because there's no such thing as a little thing. It's all great things. Take that opportunity to serve in that classroom. Take the opportunity to volunteer. Take the opportunity to serve in this event, to usher, to do this, to serve in a leadership position, to volunteer at this. Because I'm telling you, if you're like, God, use me to be this great missionary, God's going, I would love to, but you're not there yet. i got to get you ready by putting you through this, and then this, and then this, and then you'll be ready. But we want the big glorious moment, don't we? But the Apostle Paul, before he even was known as the Apostle Paul, just served with a team of people where there was a need that was opened up to him. We're not going to spend too much time on Barnabas, but I want to talk about Barnabas actually on Father's Day. We're going to do kind of a walk through Barnabas' life and an amazing individual that he is. So keep that in the back of your mind, but just a great influence in the Apostle Paul's life. Here we see him in Acts 13. And notice that Paul was still called Saul by Luke in this chapter. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And until Acts chapter 13, verse 13, he is still called Saul until that passage. Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. Now when Paul and his company. See, now his name is changed for some reason. From Acts 13, 1 to Acts 13, 13, this same guy now is known as Paul. In Acts 13, 9, Luke gives us a hint that he is known by two names to his readers. Acts 13, 9 says this, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. See, when Luke writes this book of Acts to the readers that are receiving it, the Apostle Paul is already known for some of the things he's done. And so Luke is saying, hey, Paul that you know is Paul, he used to be called Saul. And here's his story. And here we see his name changing. Once Paul really began his ministry under the calling of the Holy Spirit, he begins to go by a different name. Now, God does not change his name. God doesn't say, your name is now Paul. In fact, in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit calls Paul by his name Saul. It is believed, that is true in most cultures in this time, that Paul had two names, a Jewish name and a Gentile or Roman name, Saul being his Jewish name. And for whatever reason, Paul begins to now go by the name of Paul instead of Saul. Many people think it's because he began to change his ministry, his mindset. I don't know if that's true because he's preaching for Christ before this. Some people think it's because the name Paul means small or little of stature. And so when he was called by the Holy Spirit to begin ministering, he changed his name from going by Saul to being known by Paul because that reflected more his idea of who he is in Christ. I'm small. I'm little in comparison to what God is doing. So we don't know the fullness of why he does this, but apparently he changes his name here in this moment or rather begins to go by his Roman or Gentile name. So Paul's passion changed but stayed the same. He was still just as passionate for Christ as he was against Christ. 
But also, and finally, Paul's position was changed, but stayed the same. Paul's position was changed, but stayed the same. From being Saul the persecutor to Paul the missionary. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, listen to what the Bible says. This is Paul writing to Timothy here. This is a trustworthy saying, Paul says, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? He says, man, Christ Jesus came into the world for what purpose? To save sinners. But listen how he finishes. And I am the worst of them all. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, a pastor in church. And he says, I am the worst of all the sinners. You see, Paul chose to remain humbled in his spirit which is quite different from the man that he was before Christ. You see, as Saul, the persecutor, he could brag in his religious accomplishments, and now he realizes they are nothing but dung, the Bible says. That word dung, if you're not sure on the literal translation, is poop. I only do that because it's a, it's a biblical chance to use the word poop in church. I mean, where else can you say poop and get away with it? He says it's poop. Think about that for a moment. Uh, Not poop, but I mean just what he's symbolizing here. He says, all of my religious works, all of my good I've done as this great man of God, religiously speaking, all my religion, all my rituals, all my stuff piled up is of no greater value than a pile of dung. Man, that's a man that says, all that junk I invested in, That wasn't right. That wasn't worth it. But now, you know what he says? He says, in spite of all that, I'm striving for the knowledge of Christ. And in comparison, the knowledge of Christ is of greater value than all of my religious works. This is nothing in comparison to just knowing Christ. You ask the question, man, how could God use Paul after being such a a man that persecuted the church? How could he use him? Because he strived for the knowledge of Christ. He just wanted to know Christ more and know Christ more. So if you're allowing, or rather if you're feeling fear rising up and you're allowing that to dictate to you when and where you share your faith, might I suggest to you get to know Christ better? Have a desire to know him more? Not religion, but relationship. What could make a man see every earthly accomplishment or even spiritual accomplishments outside of the things of Christ is worthless? I believe his passion was for Christ, but his position was one of humility. His passion was not for his own kingdom, but the kingdom of God. He was a man that had a past full of mistakes and destructive decisions. Anybody got a past full of mistakes? Including five minutes ago, an hour ago, this morning? Anybody have any destructive decisions in your past? You might say, I never destroyed anyone. Maybe you destroyed part of yourself in some of your decisions. Anyone been there? Destructive decisions in your past? Raise your hand. Man, we've all been there. And Saul, this man that thought he was good and thought he was right and thought I'm doing everything God wants me to do, had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus and realized, man, all I need is Christ. He was not perfect. Paul made mistakes even as a follower of Christ. Romans chapter 7 tells us that. But he doesn't use those as excuses. Or he doesn't glory in his sin. He's being honest with the church. <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. In fact, he said that he was the worst of all sinners. 
and yet Christ used him to change the face of the world with his mission endeavors. The Apostle Paul wrote a third of the New Testament. He traveled over 10,000 miles by foot preaching the gospel. He's known for giving the first European convert to Christ in Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul was a man that was passionate. And I'm saying all that to say this. Stop thinking, man, I wish I could be like the Apostle Paul and realize God is saying, just be you and watch me use you. And why do we do that? Why do we elevate spiritual giants? And why do we do that? What does Paul say? Man, only follow me if I'm following Christ. And if I get wayward, stop following me and just follow Christ. Read the, the New Testament. Every time the Apostle Paul was starting to be worshipped for more than he was, he would instantly reject that. No, no, you don't worship me. I'm nobody. I'm the worst of all sinners. Why would you worship me? No, worship the Savior. Honor Jesus. Have a knowledge of Christ. Make disciples for Jesus, not of yourselves. As we think about this man's life, not as an unachievable example, but a practical and possible example in Christ, we must see for ourselves when we ask the questions of where do I start in sharing my faith, we start right where we are, believing that God can use us to lead others to Christ. We don't have to get caught up in converting someone. We need to get caught up in the person and purpose of Christ for our lives. Just open your mouth. Share your faith. Share the gospel and the truth and give the hope that all the world is longing to receive. Start today. Where do I start? You start where you are. I guarantee you, I promise you, there are opportunities all around you to share your faith. Some of you are like, well, I'm a single mom. I don't really, or I mean a stay-at-home mom. I don't really have a job. I don't go anywhere. I, don't, I mean, I'm home with kids all day. Then you know what you do? You disciple your children. And you share your faith with them. And you watch them grow into young men and women of God. You disciple your community, your neighborhood. I mean, get to know your neighbors. Disciple them. Start where you are, whatever that is. If it's one person, think about this. If everyone in this room just took one person, shared their faith, saw them, by God's grace, if they come to know Christ as their Savior, and then disciple that one person, think where our church would be a year from right now if everyone in this room did that with one person. I just pour your life into one person. Next week, we're going to talk about telling your story. Just telling your story. And I'm going to, we're maybe going to have a couple people share their story. I don't know what we're going to do yet. It's going to be great. Having some people just share their heart. Man, what's your story and how can you tell it? But you'll never tell your story unless you start. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. And we're going to spend a few moments in prayer and invitation. And as the praise band comes, and they're going to lead us in a song of invitation. But I want to do something this morning. If you're feeling the Lord really leading you, that you just need to start. You've received the gospel for yourself. You know the gospel personally. You've received it. It's an intimate truth in your life. You've placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Not in denominations or church or creeds or in religious works that you think somehow gain you merit in heaven. But you've received the unmerited favor of his grace. Then maybe what you would do this morning, you've realized the call. Last week you've accepted that. You realize there's a call in your life. But maybe this morning you would come and just bend a knee here at this altar. And you would say, God, I'm just going to start where I am. I'm going to believe that you can use me.
that yes, there's mistakes in my past. Yes, I've made mistakes. Yes, I'm not perfect. But I'm going to believe that if I will surrender my life to you, that you can use me to share my faith with others. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been carrying the weight of results. You've been thinking it's your job to save someone and you've been discouraged because you're not seeing those results. Or maybe, maybe you've seen results in sharing your faith. And the thing that should push you to humility in Christ has actually raised up pride in your life. That as you've led people to the Lord, you've actually taken pride in that. And you think somehow that you're better than other people because, well, I mean, look what I'm doing. And they're not doing anything. Then maybe you would come and just bend the knee and say, God, would you forgive me for my pride? Would you help me to realize that anyone that comes to Christ through me sharing my faith is only an act of your grace and your Holy Spirit? So whether you feel like you're not good enough or maybe you've been buying into the lie that there's pride and you think you're doing it. Wherever you are on that spectrum, or maybe you want to get started and you're sick and tired of fear winning. And you're going to come this morning and bend the knee and say, I'm starting today. I'm starting right now. Discouraged, defeated, I'm starting today. Believing God can do great things. Maybe you're here and you don't even know Christ. You've not personally put your faith and trust in him. And I'm telling you, his love for you is so great. That you right now, in your hearts, as we pray in just a moment, with your heads bowed right there where you are. You don't know Christ, but you want to know him. You want to know and believe that he died on the cross for your sins. That he was buried in a tomb. And that he rose again. And that if you put your faith and trust in him, you can have heaven as your eternal home as you trust in him, repenting and turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. The Bible says that if you die in your sin without Christ, that you will be eternally separated from God in a place called hell. And that's your choice. God will never force you. But if you will open your heart to him, I believe that he will show you his love and you can receive it for yourself. If you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling defeated, like nobody cares, nobody loves you, I'm telling you, he loves you more than you know. And you can find the true love and joy and peace that comes in Christ this morning. So maybe there in your seats, you would pray that prayer and ask him into your life by surrendering your life to him and repenting of your sin. Believing he did that for you. Whether you want to come and pray at this altar and say, Lord, I'm starting. Father, would you lead, guide, and direct in all these things? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As we're led in a song of invitation, would you respond? You ready to start? You tired of fear winning? Believe you can be used by God. Come and pray and ask God to do a work through you.